Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Chris Acido, who's the CEO of Gapstill Capital Partners, a management consulting firm focused on alternative credit investing. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sumit. I'm very happy to be here. Great to have you. And Chris, I would love it if you could first tell us a little bit about your firm, which is Gapstow Capital Partners. I'd love to know, you know, what you guys do and what your involvement is in the ETF industry. Happy to talk our own book as, as always. Uh, Gapstow Capital Partners is a strategic advisory firm that focuses exclusively on the alternative credit. Alternative credit being all of those things that are not traditional investment grade fixed income. So that spans from traded high yield bonds and leverage loans to structured credit, distressed debt, private lending. That's what Gapstow has been about since 2009 when I founded the firm um, in New York City. The core of the firm has always been as an investment advisor focused on uh, knowing the manager's funds ecosystem overall of alternative credit. And as you can imagine, since 2009, that's actually been a really interesting dynamic um, uh, ride as that industry has gone from a little bit of a cottage industry with not a lot of managers, not a lot of players not a lot of allocations to, you know, it's it's difficult to go to an investor meeting where they're not talking about some form of credit, be it private credit, direct lending, um, you know, structured credit, CLOs. Um, you know, that those are those have become very much uh, hot dots from uh, an investment standpoint, and so it's it's been it's been nice um, to be active in all of those areas. And Gapstow has, you asked about ETFs, we've always been a little bit of fund agnostic. Um, you will find credit strategies in private funds, both drawdown as well as hedge fund type strategies. You will find credit strategies in mutual fund and ETF strategies, credit strategies in interval funds. Um, and we've always been uh, trying to make sure that we uh, we have our eye on all aspects of uh, the fund structures that relate to alternative credit overall. Um, ETFs have been a, a relatively um, newcomer to to that uh, that bailiwick in in the sense that uh, you know un, until fairly recently, I, I might argue that there haven't been that many mutual fund or ETF or or even interval fund focused um, strategies. That's begun to really grow over the last couple of years and ETFs more recently have been uh, have, have been part of it um, and uh, you know as we'll talk about in a moment on the index uh, that that to reflects uh, an interest not only in 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 commercial real estate and per se but I think the broader interest in alternative credit overall as well that's great yeah absolutely alternative credit is a very interesting market. And we are seeing more of those strategies come into an ETF wrapper, including uh, in a e recent launch, the Axis Real Estate Income ETF, ticker symbol RINC. That ETF is actually uh, something that tracks one of your indices, the Gapstow Real Estate Income Index. 
this is an index that attracts mortgage REITs, if I'm not mistaken. Can you go a little bit more into that? What is this index and what exactly is it designed to measure? Um, so, so working with our friends at Access, um, about a year and a half to two years ago, we began thinking about um, what what might be an interesting way to deliver a high income product um, that wasn't, you know, in the more traditional vein of high yield bonds, which are reasonably well represented in the ETF world, high yield corporate bonds that was, and and we thought bringing a real estate focused product to market could be very interesting uh, for a, a, a number of reasons, both long-term um, as well as near-term. In the long-term side, we, we do think there's a good argument for why um, mortgage REITs and specifically their underlying investments, which are commercial and residential mortgages, can play a longer-term role within a broader portfolio. Near-term, we think there are some attractive features to the space right now over the next year to two, which we can get into. So both longer term and nearer term, an interesting time to bring product to market um, that really brought forward representation among this interesting ecosystem of, of mortgage REITs. And so uh, AXS sponsor, Access sponsors the product, which is the real estate uh, income fund rate rink as it were r-a-n-c um but as you mentioned uh to me that that fund tracks the custom index we developed for um access and for for this product yeah and i'd love to get more into the outlook for mortgage reits but before we do it'd be great if we could kind of get the audience educated on how mortgage REITs work, because a lot of people are familiar with equity REITs, which are those companies that own and operate physical real estate, but not as many people are familiar with mortgage REITs. How do those work? Yeah, well, you you framed it very nicely, which is equity versus mortgages or, or debt. Um, so at its heart, uh, the difference is that rather than owning a building outright, um, mortgage REITs provide the financing to somebody else owning a building. And let's divide that world up into two, um, commercial and residential, that um, there are REITs that specialize in providing financing to people who are going to buy office buildings, that are going to buy retail areas, that are going to buy warehouses, that are going to buy multifamily buildings, hotels. Um, those are the things that commercial real estate REITs own. And the portfolio of loans in a, you know, a, a stereotypical uh, commercial mortgage REIT might be 150 loans, so fairly diversified, um, but all commercial mortgages. The other part of the mortgage REIT industry are those REITs that specialize in financing our houses, um, individual ownership in a primary residence uh, for the most part. Uh, and those are the ones that either do that by issuing mortgages directly, perhaps securitizing them as well, uh, but they are in the business of doing private originations 
there are also residential mortgage REITs that specialize in buying mortgage-backed securities issued by other entities, primarily um, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and therefore uh, provide the financing, shall we stay at one arm's length move, which is uh, providing uh, the purchase of mortgages that are, were originated by somebody else. Um, but in the end, um, financing individual houses. And this, this is a, 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 a much smaller segment of the marketplace than our equity REITs, but, but not a tiny, tiny one into, uh, in by itself. And right now, in aggregate, um, uh, mortgage REITs are, in market cap terms, over $50 billion. Um, there are some four dozen, we call it 50, mortgage REITs that, uh, that exist today. Uh, so a, 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 an important um, a niche within the uh, within the REIT sector and within the uh, mortgage finance sectors overall. Awesome. So Chris, I was looking through the exposure breakdown for your index, and it looks like there's a 50% weighting in commercial mortgage REITs, a 25% weighting in agency residential mortgage REITs, and a 25% weighting in non-agency residential mortgage REITs. How were these weightings decided? Is that essentially the market value of those REITs and it breaks down into that? Uh, no, it actually began with a, with, a, with a more conceptual idea, which is how do we make sure that investors or, or people, the index reflects um, a relatively equal balance of uh, those REITs that get derived their value and uh and, and use of capital through commercial lending and those through residential lending. Uh, because we, we had no a priori belief that one was necessarily better than the other. In fact, those are unique and different sets of activities. And we thought that somebody who wanted to begin to explore an exposure to mortgage rates would want a, some assurance that they were gonna have uh, representation among both of those sorts of activities. I can't say the computer came up with the super duper optimized split 50-50. I did, um, but we thought that was a pretty good starting point. The, the market cap is not radically different than that, uh, but nonetheless, uh, we thought it important as a conceptual uh, starting point for wanting to split. Dropping down one level, we also thought it would be important to have a balance between um, agency and private lending or non-agency lending as well. Hence the 25%, 25% split between the half of the index that is represented by um, residential. But really at the high level, 50-50 commercial um, and, and residential. Um, you know, let alone the activities are different, but the, but the credit profile is typically very different as well. If you think of over the years, there have been times when households balance sheets and credit profiles are in better shape or worse shape and commercial real estate sponsors are in better shape or worse shape and those those two credit cycles um, are asynchronous and therefore we believe there's some diversification benefit from having exposure to uh, to both of those big big areas um, there's subcategories within all of that but but certainly at the high level um, want to make sure that there's a balance between uh, those two big and interesting sectors. Got it. So 50-50 commercial and residential. 
uh, how does your index, Chris, compare to competing indexes which cover mortgage REITs as well? Are there differences in terms of weightings, uh, the quality of the mortgages? What are the differences? Yeah, I would say there's there's there there are two primary differences between uh, our index and other mortgage REIT oriented indices, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll conflate a couple of competing indices um, uh, and, and speak generally, but I think my comments hold for, for, for most of the ones that I'm thinking about. The, the primary difference, I guess, the starting point is that most of the other indices are capitalization-weighted indices for the mortgage REIT business. And, and they take, as a starting point, mortgage REITs as a universe, and then weight uh, the, the holdings on a capitalization basis. What that results in is for two, two things that we try to overcome in our design. First, the first result is there's some real concentration issues from a capitalization point. But there are a handful of five or six uh, mortgage REITs that are significantly larger than the others. And so uh, you know, to, to have a portfolio where a very significant portion of the of the weights are in your top four or five names, um, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. And those are very good companies. But you do begin to think about, geez, am I taking individual risk names, uh, risk to individual names here relative to the broader mortgage rate? Um, the market. The second thing that, that the competing indices do is they don't differentiate by underlying type of mortgage. You were kind enough to allow me to wax poetic about the difference between commercial and residential, between agency and non-agency. You know, you, you may know those when you see them, but those aren't an industry-defined set of terms necessarily. And so the, 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 the research that we do in coming up with the index is to make sure that we have slotted the uh, you know the four dozen uh, traded mortgage REITs out there um, into each one of those categories and making sure that that top down 50-50 balance is put in place. Um, whereas if you do it on a capitalization basis, you do wind up having some skews. Um, in particular, you wind up relative to our index having a lot more weighting right now, at least to agency generation. Again, I can't say better or worse, um, but if you were to come into a purely capitalization weighted index, you would have um, a very stronger concentration in agency and a very strong concentration in a small list of names. I can't say that's, uh, I think our approach is more robust in that I think it's a better starting point for mortgage real estate exposure. You're not worried about Am I taking a sub-industry skew? I'm not worried about am I taking um, name risk as much as the others. Uh, we equally weight within each of the subsectors. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, to use a, a phrase that doesn't come across as trite, I see it as a positive one, which is we're trying to get that beta to the mortgage read uh, industry uh, overall, making this a very good starting point if this one, if this is to be your only. Um, reflection of the mortgage industry overall, that this index captures that on a more balanced basis um, than some of the other approaches. That's great. And of course, mortgage REITs are known for having very high yield, sometimes double digits for some of the biggest mortgage REITs. I know a lot of people are wondering, 
you know, what are the historical returns uh, for mortgage REITs? How have they performed long-term? And how does that compare to, say, the returns for equity REITs? Well, first, Samin, if you want, um, how do they get to those double-digit rates? Because I'm sure there are people listening to this who will say, well, wait a second, you know, mortgage rates have gone up, but I don't see them in the double-digit area just yet. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. well, the, the, the way mortgage REITs uh, operate, uh, in some ways, I think of them as similar to specialized banks in the sense that they have levered balance sheets. And just as a bank... Um, you know, relies on relative to their capital base, a 10 to one leverage ratio when they go out and make loans, you know, they may be not particularly risky loans and maybe they don't have huge spreads relative to treasuries. But if you can get some good financing and apply in a bank's case, 10 times leverage uh, overall, that, you know, that can make for a good return on equity. REITs don't use quite as much leverage. Agency REITs um, a little bit more commercial real estate rates, a little bit less, but there is leverage there nonetheless. And so they can take a mid to higher single digit uh, uh, mortgage rate on an individual loan and create out of that a, a, a yield profile um, that, that uh, as you mentioned at this point, is into the double digits relative to share price. Um, that's the basis of how to do it. And, and that's a virtue of the structure uh, that the leverage provided uh, to REITs is one that, um, you know, if, if it, in the long term can be beneficial if structured correctly. You'd want to invest in REITs if you do believe that this is a good source of financing for those underlying mortgages. Um, you know, longer term, the longer term, we're a believer that mortgage REITs produce an, a good return on capital. Uh, you know, similar to what banks create, we do personally, and, and we have this in, in evidence longer term that, you know, the, the, a good read is able to generate a return on equity uh, that is in the higher single digits over time. But I, I would be remiss to, to, to educate the audience on the fact that this does come with a fair degree of volatility. When you own a mortgage REIT, you're not owning those mortgages directly. You're owning equity in a company that owns and sometimes originates mortgages. And the volatility associated with REITs is equity-like in its nature. Uh, that is to say, much higher than you would get with uh, an unlevered corporate bond portfolio, even a high yield one, uh, more traditional forms of investment grade uh, for sure. Uh, but that is that is some of the trade-off that comes in. Um, and part of the volatility is because those portfolios can trade above and below book value, um, as you're familiar with, and that can lead to um, some, some volatility. Uh, but we think that, um, you know, maybe not for every investor, but if they can balance the very high yield combined with longer term, reasonably good returns on equity, um, that, you know, the, the, the volatility is a trade-off that, that could be acceptable relative to other offerings in the marketplace. So high single digit returns, that certainly sounds compelling. But obviously, those type of returns do come with some risk. So I'd love if we can kind of talk about those, Chris. Um, a couple that come to mind, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the downturn in commercial real estate potentially over the next few years. There's also the inverted yield curve. 
So I'd love it if you could talk about, you know, those two risks. Does the inverted yield curve in particular affect mortgage REITs ability to, you know, finance themselves and, you know, turn a profit? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, so so let's let's get through all of that. Maybe if I, I could to me offer a little bit of framework. I think of the, the risk to mortgage REITs as threefold, two of which you identified. I think, first of all, one needs to think about uh, credit risk, which I'll, we'll, we'll come back to each of these in terms interest rate risk, both the level as well as what you point out is a very, very important fact right now, the, the, the long-term versus short-term financing element. And then I would also offer up, uh, thirdly, the uh, premium discount, discount volatility, which I previously mentioned, but we'll, we'll come back to that third. So on the credit risk side, our listeners are going to be familiar with credit risk, which is somebody is not going to pay back their mortgage. What happens in those cases uh, are that the uh, the REITs have to foreclose, uh, potentially sell the building, and potentially not reclaiming all the money that they lent out um, to uh, to the underlying borrowers, and therefore they pay the loss, uh, not get paid back a hundred cents on the dollar, which is which is possible. I mean, sometimes buildings default, and you do get close to a hundred cents, but but not always. In, in those cases with uh, the protection being afforded by the equity investment that's made in a house or a building overall. Um, and those those risks are, of course, very real. Now, to break those down within the sectors we've looked at, um, credit risk right now, I would argue, is, is probably at historical lows in the residential mortgage world. And even though many people have memories of uh, of subprime in 2005 through 2010, the world has changed dramatically in residential mortgage lending. Um, that that, uh, that uh, you know, subprime is, uh, I would say, largely taken out of the market. The mortgages that have been issued over the last decade, uh, certainly by uh, relative performance and then an absolute sense have been largely pristine, coupled with the fact that, um, except for a few hiccups, like COVID and otherwise, um, the economy has been strong and people pay their mortgages when the economy is strong overall. But they also have equity in their house and housing prices have been going up. So, so really on the residential side, credit not being so bad. That said, if you pick up the uh, the newspaper, maybe I'm showing my age there, when you, uh, when you go to read the news online, no surprise that one of the headlines in the business section is going to be on the challenges within commercial uh, mortgage uh, and commercial office space uh, altogether. But that is the operative phrase. Uh, first thing to remember is not all commercial real estate is office. In fact, by most measures, offices, let's pull a directional up around about 20% of the overall market. And, and it's really the headlines that have been in the, the, the office space because of work from home, uh, changing dynamics of, of wanting to be in the office and downtown safety, uh, you know, those, those are, those are it. Um, the, the largest sector within commercial real estate is um, with multifamily housing. And, and that's not to dismiss a 20% sector that is important. 
Um, but if you're lending to the sector, you do therefore have uh, a few things that mitigate some of the risk, the credit risk we've been talking about. The first is, of course, that you're not first loss. The equity investor in commercial in office is the first loss. Secondly, not all office is doing terribly. There are some cities um, that office uh, dynamics are still strong, uh, impacted by work from home, yes, but, but not as dramatic as, say, New York or San Francisco. The third mitigating factor is size of the portfolio is, you know, a relatively modest going part of overall exposure within commercial real estate. So, so I wouldn't say they're inconsequential, but relative to the headlines, uh, you know, the credit risk really exists within a, a smaller piece of the overall market, at least, at least for now. And, and again, no, no great signals to indicate that it's there's a there's a contagion beyond um, some office areas, but uh, we'll see. The the other side is interest rates. Long way to get to interest rates, and so um, the the yield curve has been challenging, as you mentioned earlier, Sydney. We've never seen anything like this. Yes, yield curves have inverted in the past, but the depth and duration of this yield curve and that conversion is quite been quite significant. And very much like banks, uh, mortgage rates do have all have some element of shorter term financing and making longer term loans. And that that uh, that gets that net interest margin gets damaged when the yield curve is flat because you're not being paid um, much. And in the case of inversion, even less to lend long than you are borrowing short. Uh, that has been a very challenging part of the marketplace. I guess the glass half full component of that is that, you know, as this yield curves eventually come back to normal structure, uh, at least that's been the history of interest rates. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that hopefully will begin to take care of itself, perhaps with the Fed beginning to, to cut rates, we'll have to see. The other part uh, that's that's been challenging is with rates going up, not just the flattening of the yield curve with rates going up. A lot of the mortgage-backed securities that are carried on books of some of the residential mortgage rates in particular have had to have been marked down much as they had to be with banks who carried them and are, are carrying them. And that has been uh, challenging to, uh, to read prices overall. Again, glass half full might be if rates eventually begun to come down, that bond works. That bond map works in reverse, and uh, we can we can begin to see a a, a positive impact on mortgage backed security prices. And the last thing, as I noted, the other risk in, in REIT investing is the fact that REIT entities, the public REIT entities, don't trade at net asset value; they trade at either a premium or discount to book, and that introduces a level of volatility. Um, to share price and therefore measure share price returns, even if the net asset values are steady or slightly increasing, um, there's some additional volatility that comes into uh, taking a look at the sector. And Chris, how do mortgage REITs fit into a portfolio? Would you say they're an alternative to junk bonds within the fixed income portion of your portfolio, or are they more an alternative to equity REITs, or are they something else entirely? Great question. I think theoretically, as well as in practice, I think we're seeing two core applications of mortgage rates. Uh, the first is as a substitute for, or probably a complement to high yield 
exposure, high yield corporate bond exposure. And the logic there is that um, this doesn't necessarily replace corporate uh, debt, but if, if, if high yield is where you're going for income, um, that this could be a complement uh, to existing things that you, in, you invest in for this, the purpose of generating income uh, overall. The, the second part is, as you hinted at, um, perhaps as a complement to equity risk uh, within within REITs. And so, so therefore, maybe holding mortgage REITs in conjunction with equity REITs makes for a more balanced exposure to real estate within your portfolio. Gotcha. And so we, we've extensively covered mortgage REITs, Chris, uh, and your um, Gapstone Real Estate Income Index. I'd love it now if we can move on and talk about, you know, what other indexes you offer today. Well, um, so Gapstone, having been an early entrant into credit in 2009, or at least the credit space as we, we, we know it, actually, we've, we've had as, as a subpart of our business creating indices for that that 15-year period. And our suite of indices cover the range of funds that we mentioned earlier. Gapstow has indices that reflect credit hedge fund performance, private other forms of private fund investing within, um, with, with, within the credit world. We have indices that reflect ETF exposure or funds. We have uh, indices that reflect interval funds that focus on alternative credit. And we have uh, indices that also reflect uh, BDCs and credit-centric closed-in funds in addition to mortgage REITs overall. We we got in the business I mean, uh, less than uh, to, uh, uh, not really towards uh, an eye towards commercializing this directly, but you know, this area was such a, a new area 15 years ago from an allocator perspective that there really weren't that many indices to measure whether you were performing well in your portfolio or one of the managers or funds you were looking at was performing well. And so we, we had to go about creating this suite of indices in order to try to assess uh, relative performance within, uh, within the industry. And I should mention that RINC, which is the ETF which uses your real estate index, already has $71 million in assets under management. So it certainly has resonated with investors. Chris, do you in, do you foresee that you know more ETFs are going to use your indexes in the future? No, that's a, that's a good question. Um, would would love to think that's a possibility. Uh, that said, um, you know we're 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 pretty busy getting this existing uh, uh, ETF off the ground. You know, I think the ETFs are are really focused on a specific area, um, meaning those those underlying funds which are liquid. So some of the indices we create are are less liquid and therefore not fully um, translatable into an ETF form. But maybe to take a big step back, I, I do think the desire to create more funds within the alternative credit world um, of any format, but including ETFs is one that I think people are really going to continue to push hard on because um, you know, cr credit has emerged from, you know, an opportunistic set of interesting ideas in 2009 to where if you spoke to a typical large U.S. pension plan, they actually now have dedicated allocations to credit, um, 5, 10, 
15% of their portfolios overall. Um, so it's it's large in scale and it is also um, well structured and, and part of a long-term portfolio. We do expect Gapso, me, expect the same revolution to really begin to take hold on the individual investor uh, side of things as well. And I, I can't say there's there's one single turnkey solution, but I do think between non-traded products in the BDC and REIT space, interval funds, ETFs, even mutual funds, I think are all going to try to make sure that they are bringing a, a really interesting set of credit uh, products to the marketplace. And, uh, you know, I, I think that is only going to be enhanced uh, by, by what's happened with interest rates that, you know, now base rates being in the mid same digits, um, but, uh, you know, even on, on the treasury side, no credit risk side, by the time you add on credit risk premium, that you begin to get into the higher single digits, you know, suddenly this is not only a fixed income substitute, but I think people are beginning to think that some of the credit exposures begin to perhaps play a role with, you know, as a bit of an equity substitute or taking a little bit of equity risk off. So um, the desire to put credit exposures thoughtfully designed into uh, retail accessible products is only getting started, my opinion, I think will be a, a very interesting place to watch over the next couple of years. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Chris. So much great information. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Great pleasure to be here. So thank you for uh, your patience in uh, learning uh, deep dive into the uh, mortgage reef industry. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.